Good to see everybody on, well, I'm not really seeing you, but thanks for joining us online this morning. So we're in this series, uh, The Life of Abraham, and we have been uh, calling it Believing in God When Life Doesn't Work. And we kind of want to continue that series this morning. You know, God changes the world with folks like you and me. Just ask the 22 people who traveled to London on a fall morning in 2009 to thank Nicholas Winton, a stoop centenarian. They could have passed for a retirement home social club. They were all in their 70s and 80s. There was more gray hair than not. There were more shuffled steps than quick ones. But this wasn't a social trip. It was a journey of gratitude. They came to thank the man who had saved their lives. The same man who had met them on a train platform in 1939. At the time, he was a 29-year-old stockbroker. Hitler's armies were ravaging Europe. The nation of Czechoslovakia, Poland, they were tearing Jewish families apart and marching parents to concentration camps. No one was caring for the children. So Winton got word of their plight and resolved to help them. He used his vacation to travel to Prague there he met parents who, incredibly, were willing to entrust their children's future to this stranger. After returning to England, he continued to work his regular job by day there at the stock exchange. And in the evening, he began to try to make plans to, to get children over to Great Britain. And so he uh, would raise funds. He was lining up foster homes. He got permission from the British government to allow these children to come over. And then he scheduled his first transport on March 14th, 1939. He accomplished seven more over the next five months. His last trainload of children arrived on August 2nd bringing the total of rescued children to 669. His biggest train load was supposed to occur on September 1st, but Germany shut down the borders of Poland and Czechoslovakia before that could happen, and those 250 children were never heard from again. Nicholas Winton, only 29 years old, just a common, everyday guy did something extraordinary. He saved the lives of 669 children, most likely from the horrific gas chambers of Nazi Germany. What enables common men and women to do extraordinary things? You see, I think most people want to do great things. I think especially Christians want to make a great difference. 
I think Christians look around and they see the need for spiritual truth in our nation. They look and they see the need for Jesus Christ on every corner of our country. They look around and they see the poverty. They see the children who have no role models or poor role models. And it's no fault of theirs. They see the homeless on the street corners and on the news. They notice the single parents that are struggling. They have empathy for those who are caught up in sex trafficking. They observe the lack of quality housing in many of our neighborhoods. And then they look beyond our nation. And they see the scarcity of food in many areas. They see the lack of clean drinking water. They see the health issues that plague so much of our world. And then they sigh. I'm just one person. What can I do about it? And then they retreat back into their comfortable life. Can a common person do great things? I certainly think so. What are the characteristics that common people who do great things, what characteristics do they share? I want us to look at Abraham this morning. I want us to go to Genesis chapter 14 because Abraham's just kind of a plain, ordinary guy. And I want us to look at some characteristics that made him great. You know, Genesis chapter 14 would make a great movie. All the elements are in place for a great movie. You have heroes and you have villains and you have strategy and you have sword play. And by the time you get to the end of this, the, this story, you, you kind of feel like you know these people and you see their flaws, but you also admire their greatness. And so as we kind of pick up Genesis chapter 14, I'm going to kind of summarize the first about 15 verses for you, uh, just for, for time reasons this morning. But Genesis 14, as it begins, there's kind of chaos in Canaan. And Lot and Abraham are no longer together. You may remember at the end of Genesis chapter 14 that, that Abraham and Lot had separated. Uh, Lot had decided to take the well-watered plains over close to Sodom, and Abraham had gone over toward Hebron. And so they've separated. And we don't know how much time there is between Genesis chapter 13 and Genesis chapter 14. Most likely, a number of years have passed. And the reason we say that is because we read in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham's household, so to speak, has expanded. And it tells us that there were 318 men in Genesis chapter 14 who had been born into his household. Now this phrase, born into his household, doesn't mean like they were literally born into his household. Not like they were babies and then they grew up in Abraham's house. You know, like they started as babies and grew up and now they were young men. It's not like they were nephews and nieces or children or grandchildren. What that term born there means is they were not purchased. They came on their own. They weren't enslaved. 
And the writer wants us to make sure that we understand that these people have come to Abraham on their own by choice. Why is this important? Why would these people do this? So back in ancient times, there weren't a lot of strong national governments. So some people to provide protection and provision for their families, of course, they would go to a city and become part of that community and they would receive protection and community and things like that. Then other people would line themselves up. Instead of going to a city, they would line themselves up with men who were influential, men who had a great reputation. In some cases, these men would be wealthy like Abraham. And so that's why these men came to Abraham. Now, why is this important? Because it tells us that, that Abraham had such a reputation that he attracted people to himself. They came to Abraham. He, he, he was influential. He had a great reputation and they came to him because they knew that he would protect them, that he was honest. And they came to ask to be members of his household. Contrast that with what other kings and powerful men did. They would go and they would conquer cities. And they would charge protection fees for people. And if they didn't go along, then they would enslave them. So scripture's making it clear what the Old and New Testament sometimes refer to as men stealers. That Abraham wasn't one of them. He was not a slave owner. And so then you kind of get into the chapter itself. I just had to kind of give you that background. Abraham is living kind of peacefully with these four pagan kings that have kind of gotten together. And they are going around conquering various cities. But Abraham has no beef with them, so to speak, at this point. And this coalition of, of pagan kings, I'll say it one time, probably butcher it. And then after that, we're going to call him King K. His name was Kotalomar. And so he's the King K from here on out. He's the head of this coalition of pagan kings that is conquering these different cities. And King K would go in and he would kind of make these cities vassal cities, which means they would have to pay heavy taxes in exchange for protection. In this arrangement, he would kind of guarantee their safety from any potential marauders. But if they didn't pay, they were going to need protection from him. So, I mean, he's kind of a first-class bully. Well, this goes on for a dozen years. And eventually, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other cities decide they've had enough. And so they rebel against King K, this big bad king from the east. And the rebellion doesn't go well. I mean, he decides to make an example of them. And he just ransacks their cities. He loots their cities. He takes people. He enslaves them. And, and it's just terrible. And among the people he enslaves are Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. So the chapters, verses 5 through 11, describe in detail this story. Why all the detail? I, mean, I, I always find it interesting when Scripture gives you incredible detail why they give you the detail that they give you? Well, I think a couple reasons. One, it illustrates the power of King K's army. And that's significant when we read about Abraham's army later in the chapter. And secondly, King K basically 
possessed the land that had been promised to Abraham. Just, just bas- you know, basically, it was that land. And yet, this doesn't seem to bother Abraham. And again, I think it shows his faith. Abraham is like, you know what? God has promised me this land. I'm not going to worry about it. When God is ready, I'll have that land. So it didn't matter to him what the big bad king of the east was doing. It's also something I think worth noting that Abraham doesn't get involved with these pagan king matters. There is normally no reason for God's people to get involved with pagan things. Pagan politics, those kind of things, pagan kings. We might say this about Abraham. He didn't have a dog in the fight. He didn't involve himself in the skirmishes. He didn't involve himself in the petty politics until it affected his family. By the way, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying he saw no reason to be involved in what these pagan kings were doing. It's also interesting, this scripture mentions some very specific things about the battle. Now when you're, you know, in sports, you're supposed to have a home field advantage. In, in, in military strategy, if you're fighting on your home turf in your own country, you should have a strategic military advantage. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, when they went up against King K, they should have a strategic advantage because they're fighting on home turf. But scriptures tell us that King Sodom's men actually found themselves stuck in the local tar pits. These tar pits, petroleum bubbling up through the ground and it produces this sticky goo. And his men were less effective fighting because they kept getting trapped in, in, in these tar pits. That should have been an advantage that they could have used in their favor against King K. And instead, it shows their incompetence. And I think that's why God shares some of these details, as as I mentioned again, because we're going to see it different with how Abraham fights. So having routed the defenses of Sodom and Gomorrah and taken all these people prisoner, including including Abraham's nephew Lot and, and his family and taking all this plunder with him, a POW escapes, good for Lot, and goes back and tells Abraham what has happened. So now Abraham has a decision to make. What should he do about his nephew Lot? There are two reasons why he shouldn't get involved. Number one, I already mentioned, it really wasn't his fight. Number two, Lot had brought this on himself. He took the well-watered land and left his uncle with the scrub land. That was the decision he made. And Lot initially moved close to Sodom. And then he moved into Sodom by the time we get into Genesis chapter 14. And I'm sure he thought to himself, this city that's known for its wickedness, that, hey, you know, I'll be the shining light. It won't affect me. I'm strong enough. And I mean, people say that today. But what happens when you morally compromise? One bad decision leads to another bad decision. And in Lot's case, two bad decisions have now left to him, have led him to being a captive to four pagan kings. Think about this if you're Abraham. Would you maybe just sit back in your rocking chair and think to yourself, you know what? That young whippersnapper brought it on himself. 
It's his own fault. He made his choice and he needs to suffer the consequences. He just needs to buck up and learn a hard lesson. We might say he made his bed, let him lie in it. But you don't see that petty response from Abraham. Great people don't judge others for having needs, even troubles that they bring upon themselves. Great people see crisis as another call to action. Genesis 13 through 16 tell us how Abraham responds to the news. He leads these 318 trained fighters that I had mentioned to you earlier. I want you to know, you don't quite get the, 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 the picture of what kind of fighting men these were when you look at the English. But these were like Abraham's own SEAL team. I mean, this is like a special forces group. And here's why I say that. The word that's used in the English translations as mobilization or mobilized, it's a very picturesque word in the Hebrew. And it literally means this. His servants are portrayed as a sword that has been sharpened and polished into a gleaning razor sharp instrument of death. I mean, these are the real deal guys. His own special forces unit. And like a special forces group, they launch this daring nighttime raid. I got a map up here and I just kind of want to show you what kind of happens. So, straighten this up. Abraham's men are down here and King Kay is up there in the city of Dan. And his army is kind of bivouacked there and... Abraham's men are 100 miles away and, you know, they have conquered at this point 12 different cities King K has. I mean, I'm sure they're a little bit arrogant. They have humiliated every king and every army that has come up against them. I'm sure they're just kind of sitting back and thinking, man, we've got it made. And I don't think they ever dreamed that Abraham was going to come. I mean, I'm sure they would have been aware of him and wouldn't have thought he would have had an army big enough. And I sure don't think they expected a nighttime attack. But notice the difference. I mentioned to you all the details about Sodom's army. Abraham's army, they come and they come at night and they use cunning and deception and they attack from different positions. And this army of, or the special forces group of 318 rout an army of thousands. And they just don't settle for getting Abraham's nephew Lot back. They chase the army of King K up into the mountains for 50 miles. This tiny band of highly trained soldiers defeat this army. And then they take all the spoils of war as well as Lot and his family. Notice... It's always interesting to me what Scripture mentions and what Scripture doesn't. There's never any mention of Abraham and Lot kind of reuniting and Lot saying something along the lines of, hey, Uncle Abraham, thanks for coming and getting me. You never read that. But what else you don't read, which to me might be more important, you don't read that Abraham keeps a journal that says, you know, a list of dummies that never said thank you. He doesn't have a list like that. He's not petty like that. Great people come to the rescue 
But they don't expect recognition or their name in the paper. Also, something else that that I think is interesting, it piggybacks with what we talked about last week. The integrity that Abraham shows when he prospers. You know, how do you do when things are going well? We talked about that last week. So that the news of the victory spreads quickly. Everybody finds out about it. And so as Abraham is escorting, he's got the spoils of war and he's escorting his, his nephew Lot back towards Sodom and Gomorrah, two kings come out to meet him. One is King Melchizedek. And that name means king of righteousness. And he is a believer in God. And he brings food and drink and he shows hospitality to Abraham and his men. And he expresses his gratitude. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was, priest, he was a priest of God, most high. And then he says this, this blessing of prayer on them. The prayer is this. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. And then notice the last sentence. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek comes out. And he doesn't take anything away from Abraham's bravery. But he gives all the glory to God for the victory. And then there's no indication that these two guys have ever met, Abraham and King Melchizedek. But yet Abraham gives him a tenth of the spoils of war. Why would he do that? Well, I think he's showing gratitude for the hospitality and also for the blessing about God's victory. This was the act of a modest man who gave all the credit for his victory to God. A smaller man might have said, I'm glad you heard of my triumph. Where's my distinguished service medal? Where's my reward? Where's the ticker tape parade in my honor? But while King Melchizedek brings gifts and a blessing, says a blessing, contrast that with how King Sodom approaches Abraham. Because it's a different attitude. In verse 21, this is what he says. Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So he says, you give me my people back, you keep the stuff. And I say this very sarcastically. Well, that's just great of him, isn't it? Because he is in no position whatsoever to let Abraham keep anything. Abraham has every legitimate right to keep the spoils of war. Abraham has defeated the king that humiliated, defeated the king of Sodom. So the king of Sodom, he has no ground whatsoever to stand on. He, he can't let Abraham keep anything. Or he, he can't stop Abraham from keeping everything, I guess is the way to say it. There's nothing he can do about it. It's totally up to Abraham. And I think most likely Abraham had already figured out what he was going to do with the spoils of war. And in case, you know, you might think this is like a U-Haul full of stuff. Think a little bit bigger than that. Twelve cities King K has plundered. Even if they're small cities. Think about how much furniture that is. 
How much jewelry? The currency then, silver and gold. How much pottery? How many utensils? How many weapons? Twelve cities. I mean, I see this as a caravan stretching behind Abraham for miles. And Abraham has every right to keep it. And that amount of wealth would have been staggering. But he valued his integrity more. That was more important to him than this caravan full of spoils. Notice verses 22 and 20, 23 and 24. That I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal. I love that, that expression there, a strap or a sandal. You know, we might say, I wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole. I wouldn't let you touch me with a strap of a sandal. So you can, keep, you can add that to your things and see if anybody looks at you kind of funny. So that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to a Nair, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So, so here you have Abraham. He could have kept everything, but he wanted to be sure that there was no question in anybody's mind that all of this stuff came from God, not some sleazeball king from Sodom. And he gives all the credit to God and he keeps a little bit like a reimbursement for himself and his men for his expenses. And it's just this magnificent model of greatness and this magnificent model of an absence of greed. Just integrity beyond reproach. You know, Ray Steadman, who is no longer with us, he was an extraordinary Bible expositor he was the pastor of a church in Palo Alto, California. And he was a coveted conference speaker back in his day. I mean, everybody wanted to have Ray Steadman come and speak at their conferences and at their churches. So he's attending a conference in Vermont, and he tells this story. He's staying in this little bed and breakfast, Ray is. And each morning he eats breakfast alone, and he admired this innkeeper's taste and decor. And there was this beautiful, beautiful pewter tabletop set of salt and pepper shakers and a sugar and a, and a creamer bowl there. And when he returned to uh, his uh, church the next Sunday, he's going to preach on temptation. And so during the sermon, he said that he had a great time while he's away, but he needed to make a confession. He said, and I'm quoting now, I was sitting at this breakfast table all alone with no one else around, and I thought I'd really have, like to have this complete salt and bet. There's one on every table, and the owners must have, been, have many more of them. If they take one, they'll never know. If I take one, they'll never know. And then he went on, but I have to, here to tell you that I had to restrain myself. I didn't give in to that temptation, and I'm so glad that I don't have to confess to you this morning that I am guilty of stealing. Well, the following week, long toward the end of the week, he received this beautiful gift wrap package to his office, and it was, he found it on his desk. And he opened it up, and it was one of those sets. And one of his church members who had heard the sermon had anonymously called the innkeeper, paid for it, and ha had it shipped to him. And so that Sunday morning when he was preaching, he brought it and he set the box up on the pulpit and he thanks the anonymous giver. And then he said, what I really wanted to tell you is that I also lusted after the 36-inch colored television set that was there. 
Some of you are old enough to remember when a 36-inch television set was a big television set. And, uh, but the, the point he was making and I'm making this morning is, is, is all of us can be tempted. A guy that is a coveted conference speaker, tempted to just steal salt and pepper shakers. Abraham, there's all this wealth. Even wealthy people can be lured by the prospects of more riches. I'm sure Abraham probably had thoughts like, boy, all of this, look, look, the, look at the good I could do with all these spoils of war. I'm sure he thought, I can reward these men who went out and fought for me against all odds. Maybe he thought, you know, with this kind of treasure, I can build a walled city for myself and, and my people and, and, and end this nomadic lifestyle of wondering that I have. He knew what he was giving up, but the wealth didn't turn his head. I think he had learned that after the famine test. It's also kind of cool that you look at him and he, uh, he doesn't force his personal convictions on the other men. He let Anair and Eskol and Mamre, who had joined him on his mission, he let them take what they wanted. That, they, were, they could do that. God hadn't specifically said anything. Great men don't try to impose their control over the behavior of others when God is silent on a matter. He said, let them take their share. And so with that backdrop of, of chaos and questionable characters, Abraham kind of emerges as this, this truly great man. There's four qualities I want you to notice about him. The first one is this. First, they practice genuine unselfishness I have never met a great person who was selfish unselfish people habitually hold everything and everyone loosely they don't try to squeeze the life out of their possessions or their relationships by by clutching them with some kind of obsessive intensity they cultivate generosity and they look how to look they look and see how can i share secondly they practice self sacrifice great people possess the willingness to sacrifice their own needs their own wants and their own comfort for the sake of others great individuals overlook differences they don't allow their personal prejudices or or personal judgments or other people's failings to affect them. They don't allow that to keep them from seeking the great or good of other people. When you account, encounter a truly great person, they will sacrifice for you, even if you have differences, even if you have personal failings. Thirdly, there is an absence of greed among great people. Great people are not motivated by the idea of just having more to have more. They're not interested in just acquiring wealth for the sake of wealth. That doesn't make sense to them. They're not always asking what they're going to be paid for something. They don't have narcissistic tendencies. It's just the opposite. They do things without expecting anything back. They see money as a tool that God has given them to bless other people. Last one. They focus on controlling themselves 
not on controlling others. They're not on a power trip attempting to gain control of other people. It's true that great people often have positions of authority. They have positions of influence. But they keep a tight rein on themselves and their potential to try to control and harm other people. They're not interested in playing king of the mountain. They don't pull rank. They don't expect other people to fall in line. Great people give other people their permission to fail. They give people permission to make mistakes. You made a mistake. This didn't work out. What can we learn from it? They, they use their influence to help other people achieve their full potential. In fact, if you were to kind of boil all these characteristics down, you might say that Abraham was a great man of humility. He had that quality in spades. Even though he was powerful and influential, it's like he never let that go to his head. Scripture says that he was a friend of God. He had his own failings and he helped other people overcome theirs. And perhaps all these magnificent character qualities explain why truly great people seem to be rare. Remember we started this morning with the story of Nicholas Wintone. Let me tell you the rest of the story. After the war, he didn't tell anybody. I'm assuming that he must have gotten married later. Because apparently in 1988, his wife was going through the attic and found this scrapbook and she didn't know anything about it. And in the scrapbook were the names of all 669 children that he had rescued. And many of them, there were pictures accompanying the name. She prodded him to tell the story, but he didn't want to tell her the story, but he finally did. And then eventually some news organizations and stuff found out about the story and it began to become more public. And so these children started coming back to him to say thank you. The grateful group included a film director, a Canadian journalist, a news correspondent, a former member of the British cabinet, a magazine manager, one of the founders of the Israeli Air Force, Listen to this. There are 7,000, over 7,000 children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren that owe their existence to the bravery of one man. Somebody gave him a ring, and it bears one of those people that he had saved, one of those children. It bears a line from the Talmud, which is the book of Jewish law. And the line says this, save one life, save the world. And not on the ring, but my words, chalk another one up for the ordinary man and woman, common man and woman. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come to you today and Father, we, we read about a person like Abraham and we hear this story about Nicholas Wintone. And Father, we're just amazed at what you can do in people's lives that are willing to uh, let you work. And Father, we thank you for the story of Abraham and Father, just the humility that such a great man displayed. 
And Father, I don't have any idea what you might be asking people to do in here today. I think sometimes we, we do see the needs and we just get frustrated or we just can't see how we could help. But Father, I just pray that you put some burdens on our hearts. And maybe they're already there and we just need you to show us what to do. And then we need to be willing. But Father, help all of us to be difference makers. Help us to take these principles today and put them into practice. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.